It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 25th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week, it's a Linux week. Ubuntu Linux, one of the easiest Linux distributions I've found to install and maintain. It'll run on just about any hardware, and the built-in free applications handle email, web browsing, and other Internet functions that you might need. All the standard office needs are there for word and number crunching, but it still hasn't been widely accepted. Why? Well, it probably has something to do with Microsoft FUD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Now, ironically, that's the same delaying tactic that IBM used to fight Microsoft back in the 1980s. It didn't work then. It won't work now. FUD delays acceptance, but it doesn't halt it. The new version of Ubuntu Linux, released in late April, pushes the operating system a lot closer to a point where the average computer user won't be able to ignore it. I visited the Ubuntu website to grab the latest download, and they were very in-your-face, Microsoft, right from the first page. All operating systems, they said, include stuff you'll never use. For example, Ubuntu 8.04 LTS includes an easy uninstall feature. We know, completely redundant. Ubuntu 8.04 LTS for desktops. You'll never go back. I kept expecting the next panel to say Burma Shave, but that never came up. I did discover one small problem because I was trying to download the new version of Ubuntu on the day it was released, and I ran into several sorry-too-busy messages on various servers. I had to try several sites before I found one where I could actually download it. But I was downloading only to have a full copy in case I need it later for some reason, like, for example, to install it on another machine. Instead of downloading the version that was installed on my notebook, I updated Unlike Microsoft or Apple operating systems, users can upgrade most Linux systems by using the Update Manager. In this case, Ubuntu 7 detected version 8 being available in addition to standard version 7 update packages. It offered me the opportunity of adding version 7 updates or migrating to version 8. So I selected version 8. The Update Manager downloaded information about files that were needed and files that were available. That took a few minutes. Next, Ubuntu listed the packages that would be updated, told me the process would download overall more than 1,000 files. The process, it told me, would take a little under three hours. It was lying through its teeth, of course. But then it decided to tease me. It said the process would take only 30 minutes instead of three hours. Yeah, I knew better. Linux users like to make fun of Microsoft and Apple when those companies try to estimate how long a process will take. The simple fact is that these estimates are all based on the current instantaneous download speed and the size of the files remaining to be downloaded. The numbers can be wildly inaccurate, and as the download speed changes, the estimate changes. So the estimate went to 5 hours instead of 30 minutes, and then it went to 18 hours. Over the next several hours, the estimate ranged from a low of less than an hour to more than three days. After telling me for two hours that the process would take two hours, and after downloading more than 770 files out of 1,221, 
The installation manager told me that the process would continue for two hours and 30 minutes, one hour and 15 minutes, or three hours and 47 minutes. I went to bed. The next morning, there were a few final tasks that needed my attention. The new components had all been installed. All that remained for me was to decide whether I wanted to keep any of the old packages or remove them. I could see no reason to keep them, so I removed them. For the next several minutes, file names scrolled by as the updater removed packages that I wouldn't need anymore. And when that process ended, all that remained was for me to start the system to finish the switch from Ubuntu 7 to Ubuntu 8. I don't recall the upgrade from Windows 3 to Windows 95 being that easy, nor the upgrade from Windows 95 to 98, nor the upgrade from Windows 98 to 2000, or the upgrade from 2000 to XP, and certainly not the upgrade from XP to Windows Vista. Apple's upgrades to newer versions of the OS were easier than their Microsoft counterparts, but still not as easy as the Ubuntu process. So that was it. The update process was complete, most of it occurred without any intervention on my part. And there's a new feature in version 8 of Ubuntu. In the past, if you wanted to install Linux on a Windows machine and you wanted to keep Windows, the technique was challenging. It wasn't particularly difficult, but it was more than a little scary because it required you to create a new partition on the boot disk and install Linux on that new partition. This is not something that people do for fun. Well, the new version does all that for you. In fact, you can run the installer from inside Windows. You don't have to set aside space for a partition. The installer creates Ubuntu as a single Windows file. At boot time, you determine whether you want to start Windows or whether you want to start Linux. This is without question the fastest and easiest way to install Linux. And of course, with Ubuntu, you don't even really have to install it. If you just want to test it, you can create a bootable CD and run Linux from the CD. It's a little bit slow if you do it that way, and you don't have all the features, but you can certainly see how it works and see if you think you might want it. News releases from software publishers always mention price and availability of new applications. This creates a little bit of a challenge when your application isn't available in stores and costs nothing. Still, there was a news release from Ubuntu, and it had a price and availability section. Ubuntu 8.04 LTS Desktop Edition is free of charge and available on Thursday from www.ubuntu.com forward slash download. Oddly, one of the features promoted most heavily in Ubuntu 8 is a piece of beta software. It includes the latest stable version of many core products, the news release said, then noted that Mozilla Firefox 3 Beta 5 was included. Beta and stable are rarely used in the same sentence, and I don't consider Firefox 3 Beta 5 to be stable because it still crashes way too often. This week, Firefox 3 Release Candidate 1 was released. That's in nerdly news coming up. That's not all that's new, of course. The default photo manager for Ubuntu Linux, FSpot, has been updated. And this version of Linux is said to work better with cameras and phones. I don't know. I didn't try that. Audio and video resources have been improved, although my five-year-old Toshiba laptop makes it difficult to judge that because the hardware is so old that those features aren't supported. Ubuntu also claims better CD and DVD support so that users can burn disks easily with Bracero. 
because of the old hardware, I don't get to see the latest cool visual effects, but I know that features available easily meet or exceed what Microsoft and Apple are doing in this area. This version of Ubuntu is called Hardy Heron. It replaces Gutsy Gibbon. What's with the names? Well, they're just code names, of course. Adobe uses mountains. Ubuntu uses unusual animals with even more unusual attributes. Why? Well, I posed that question to Canonical's public relations group. It's just what we do, they said. Oh, and by the way, Ubuntu doesn't use a numbering scheme like anybody else's. Normally, an upgrade from 7.x to 8.x would indicate major changes. For Ubuntu, the major number simply indicates the year of the release, 2008 in this case, and the minor number is the month, April, so 8.04. Ubuntu says that more commercial applications will be available on Ubuntu 8, including some offerings from Adobe, Google, Real Networks, Nero, Skype, Corel, Parallels, and Fluendo. The sooner commercial software vendors offer their applications on the Linux platform, the sooner users will be able to migrate from Microsoft or Apple to open-source Linux. Needless to say, both Microsoft and Apple are working to thwart that move. When I needed to buy a reference manual for a new online application I'm using for a client, I was dismayed to find that the book was going to cost more than $50. That's not an unreasonable price for a book. I know that because I have some understanding of how the publishing industry works and what it costs to create a book. But this is a book that's going to have a limited lifespan, maybe two or three years, and then I'll need to buy a new book for the latest version of the application. Well, this is a dumb way to sell information. Reference manuals should be provided electronically. Oh, and I found that the book I was looking for can be provided electronically at half price. I like books. They're highly portable. They offer immediate random access, particularly when used in conjunction with bookmarks or an index. I can add my own information by using a pen or a pencil. Pretty handy, those books. But it's not the book I want. It's the information inside the book. And it's the physical book that causes the price of information to be so high. In creating a product, there are two main classifications of costs, fixed and incremental. Fixed costs are incurred whether you create one copy of the product or a million. They don't change. Incremental costs represent the additional cost of creating each new unit. With books, the incremental cost is what drives the price up. Maybe we don't want works of fiction to be delivered electronically just yet, maybe not even nonfiction, but I can sure make a case for converting all documentation to electronic forms, even if some of me would prefer the book. Young people today generally don't read for pleasure. They read what they must read, and many would prefer to do that on screen. So eventually, books are going to be replaced by electronic forms. Now is the time for that to happen with documentation for computer applications. Consider the costs. To do that, I've created a mythical application called the Grunge Puppy 4.5. It's a fairly complex application that requires a 500-page manual with 50 10-page chapters, each written by a different subject matter expert. I then created a spreadsheet that shows the equally mythical costs. I've largely pulled numbers out of the air. The spreadsheet is available from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. 
I'm going to assume that each of the 50 writers will be paid $1,000 for their 10-page contributions. I'm also going to assume that there is a team of three editors who will spend 100 hours on the text at a cost of $35 per hour, including benefits, and that there will be two artists also at a cost of $35 per hour with benefits, and that they will spend 30 hours each creating illustrations for the book. Then there will be two page makeup specialists, also known as typesetters. They're going to need eight hours each, $35 an hour, including benefits, to flow the text into the typesetting application and make it ready for the press. These are the costs that will be borne whether the press prints one copy of the book or one million. Total fixed costs for this mythical book are $63,160. On a press run of 50,000 copies, that comes out to $1.26 per book. Now, we need a mythical press run, so I've decided we're going to print those 50,000 copies of the book and that every single copy will be sold. That, of course, would never happen. We're working with a printer who's going to create the books for $25 each. I'll figure the distribution costs at about $5 a book. The press is going to assume a 40% markup. That's standard. The incremental cost per book is $35, so paper, printing, and distribution cost nearly 28 times what the preparation of the information cost. No wonder the book has to sell for 50 bucks. Now, if we distribute the book electronically, we start with a cost per book of $1.26. We're going to assume the same 50,000 copies will sell. There will be some additional costs, of course, a website with high security, preparation of a file that can be easily used but may have some copy protection built into it. So let's be generous and say that this might cost $5 per copy sold. Cost of the electronic book could be dropped to $20, $30 less than the paper version, and the publisher would earn only slightly less profit per book. But what if, by reducing the price to $14 per book, the publisher would be able to sell 100,000 copies instead of 50,000 copies at $50 a book? In that case, the profit per book would be substantially less, but the overall net from the book would be more than 21% greater based on higher volume. The electronic model also reduces paper use, cost of transportation, so it's essentially a win for everybody. This is not a change that people will accept easily. I know people who print websites to read them. I also know people who refuse to use automatic teller machines at banks. These people are part of a shrinking group. Each new generation accepts advanced technologies as simply the way things are done. Today, people are more likely to read information online, or at least from a computer screen, than on paper. ATMs, or increasingly online, are the only methods that many people know or will use to deal with their banks. So as I said, books are dead. They just don't know it yet. My monthly spam count is now up to nearly 9,000. Wow, that's exciting news. I see very little of the slot, but I do look through the list once a week or so just to see what the current trends are. A lot of people are being caught naked these days, and also to identify messages that I can make fun of. In one case, I looked just at the subject lines from the perspective of identifying which messages I wouldn't open, even if the spam catcher had missed it and the message somehow ended up in my inbox. Here are just a few from a recent Monday morning. See for yourself for only a buck. No, I'd, I'd rather see my buck, sorry. No test, no class. Buy yourself a bachelor, master, MBA, doctorate. 
well, definitely no class there if you can't even spell the name of the degree. Then I got two naked videos, Your Naked William Blinn and Your Naked Webwonk. I don't think so. Get a complimentary 2007 personal forecast from Bethia Jenner. Okay, so I looked up Bethia Jenner using a Google search, and I find that she's kind of a standard run-of-the-mill psychic. I can already see the future, though. I'm not going to be opening the message. And it was kind of interesting that Bethia Jenner would give me a personal forecast for 2007. Yes, if you check the calendar, this is 2008. Fell yourself safe and sound with our medicines. I'm not sure about that. I'm fairly certain I don't want to fell myself. This one seemed to be shouting. Ladies and gentlemen's, please welcome Her Majesty Pharmacy. Somehow the plural possessive seems a bit out of place here, along with the queen. And why should I care about her pharmacy? Here's one that caught my attention. Is your bikini body ready? No, and neither is my bikini. Well, here's a garden variety spam, literally. It's either a click fraud operation or some clueless mass marketer. It was a spam for Patch Perfect. It's like grass seeds on steroids. Grows faster, thicker, fuller. Okay, so this seems to be something that has been advertised on television. I don't want my grass to grow faster. It grows fast enough as it is. Well, I have no idea how effective this stuff is, but I do know that the spam wasn't very effective, except for giving me something to ridicule. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can see the HTML version of the spam, and you can see a text version of the spam. The HTML version is just a picture showing grass and suggesting that you click for details and a little bit of information about the product itself. However, hidden is this text. This notice outlines the privacy policies associated with this email. By clicking any image and or text link in this email, excluding the removal link, you are accepting the practices described in this privacy policy. As such, you are representing that you have the authority and are authorizing $50daily.com and or any of its business associates to contact you via email, postal mail, or telephonically with information stored at $50daily.com database. So, if you click any link you will have just given $50daily.com permission to call you, send you email, and send you postal mail. There is a word for this. That word is fraudulent. So I did a little research on $50 Daily and found that the organization's website is under construction. And a bit of additional research revealed that the operation is on real-time blacklists as a confirmed spamming operation. No surprise there. Uh, but apparently not a very good one. It's all the way down at number 315 on one of the lists. And the organization either doesn't quite understand how email works, or it's more interested in making sure that it does not hear from anyone who wants to opt out. The email message says, If you have any questions about this privacy policy, please email us at privacy, left parenthesis, the word at, right parenthesis, http colon slash slash fifty dollars daily dot com or by sending a letter to privacy twenty five twenty six first street santa monica california nine zero four zero five email addresses do not contain http colon slash slash that is not a valid email address as for the postal address doesn't exist I first tried Google Maps and learned that what would be or might one day have been First Street is actually Main Street or Ocean Avenue or possibly even the Pacific Coast Highway in Santa Monica. 
To confirm that the address doesn't exist, I tried the U.S. Postal Service. The address does not exist. Now, there's a word for this, too. Same word. Fraud. In Nerdly News, Ready, Set, Firefox. My favorite browser continues to be Firefox because it makes possible the development of plugins or add-ons, depending on whether you want to use the new term or the old term. Microsoft's browser has plugins too, but most of them aren't free. One of the Windows-centric magazines recently did an article called 10 IE Plugins That Don't Suck. They ruled out useless plugins and ones that users have to pay for, and they came up with 10 that might possibly be worth installing because they aren't too bad. Firefox has hundreds of plugins, and I would be very ill at ease if I had to give up some of them. When Firefox 3 Beta 5 became available, I loaded it, and on Thursday, May 22nd, Firefox 3 Release Candidate 1 became available. You might wonder what software companies mean by release candidates. It's typically the step after beta, but before the final production release is out. Release candidate refers to a version that has the potential to be the final release The only reason a release candidate would not actually make it into production is if some showstopper-type bugs show up. At this phase, the product is essentially complete. There are only a few reasons why you might want to hold off on Firefox 3. One of those is if you happen to use LogMeIn, the plug-in doesn't yet work in version 3. I do use LogMeIn, and I have to use a generic viewer when I want to connect to my office machine, and that generic viewer is more than lame. It is, in fact, horrid. Other reasons not to upgrade yet might be any plug-in that specifically does not work with Firefox 3. When you upgrade, you'll see error messages from a lot of the add-ons that aren't certified to work with the latest version. Most of them will work, though, once you wave the nightly tester tool over them and just rewrite some code within the plug-in. After upgrading, you'll see the usual new version screen from the Mozilla folks. After that, you'll need to run the nightly tester tools to fix settings for plugins that think they're not compatible with this version. Most of them will be compatible, but you may have one that will cause Firefox to crash. Indeed, I did. If this is the case, you then need to start Firefox in safe mode. There's a start menu option for doing that. And then you disable half the plugins. If the problem still persists when you start Firefox again, the trouble is with one of the plugins in the group you left enabled. So you go back and do it again, disable half of those. In other words, it's a standard binary debugging process. If you're using a browser other than Firefox, now is the time to take a look at Firefox. Really, it is a better browser. Remember the spams that told you to forward this message to whatever number of people and Bill Gates would pay you a million dollars or whatever it was. I couldn't get that out of my mind when I read the latest Microsoft ploy to bribe users. Microsoft says that it can offer rebates to people who use its search application to find and buy products. In other words, Microsoft, with less than 10% of the search engine market share, hopes to beat Google by buying some of its customers. The one thing I can't get out of my mind, though, is the word backfire. Live search cashback puts the focus on products that users buy online. Bill Gates says it's a big part of the $20 billion search market, and Microsoft wants a piece of that action. Live search cashback has Microsoft putting its money where its search engine is. Compared to Microsoft's less than 10% of the market, Google has nearly 62%, and that percentage is increasing. Don't count Microsoft out, though. 
when Word had a small fraction of the Word processor market, and WordPerfect was the top dog, Microsoft kept plugging away and put WordPerfect essentially out of business. It's going to be an uphill battle. Microsoft is in the also-ran position with its 10% share. Second place is held by Yahoo. Ah, maybe that's why they've been talking to Yahoo recently. Yahoo has about 20% of the search market. So combined, they would have 30% compared to Google's 60-plus. Microsoft says it has signed up 700 merchants who sell more than 10 million products. Microsoft will determine the amount of the rebate shoppers earn, and those rebates aren't very big. In most cases, the discounts are in the range of 2 to 5%. Will the average user who's looking for a digital SLR camera be willing to use Microsoft's search to net a 20 to $50 savings? Eh, maybe. 50 bucks is half a tank of gas these days. But what about people who are looking for something in the 100 to $500 price range, where the possible extra savings might be no more than $2? That worth it? That's why I can't get backfire out of my mind. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 25th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.